Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Craig Benjamin about his history of the development of trading routes between Asia and Europe two millennia ago, entitled Empires of Ancient Eurasia, the First Silk Roads Era, 100 BCE to 250 CE. Craig, welcome to the show. Mark, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on New Books Network. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, you might be able to hear from my accent. I was born in Australia, uh, in Brisbane, uh, lived in Sydney for much of my life. Uh, Most of my education was done in Sydney and a little bit in the UK as well. Uh, My wife and I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan 16 years ago to take up uh, a very good position in the history department at uh, Grand Valley State University, which is in western Michigan, just out of Grand Rapids. Been living happily here ever since and uh, and thoroughly enjoyed working with my students and working on my various research projects. Your range of research projects is really quite considerable. You've done a lot of work both as a author and an editor. What was it that led you to undertake a book about this subject of the first Silk Roads era? Well, when I was uh, studying uh, as an undergraduate at Macquarie University in Sydney, I became more and more interested in Roman culture and how far it was spreading into sort of Central Asia. And I spoke to a, a professor there, David Christian, And David said, have you ever heard of the Kushans? And I said, never have. And he said, you should look into them. And with those two sentences, basically my whole uh, field of of interest went off in an entirely new direction. I started looking more and more at uh, Central Eurasia, uh, essentially the crossroads of these great trade networks, and became over the years that followed something of a specialist on the Kushan Empire, the Parthian Empire, and the various circumstances, particularly the role of pastoral nomads, that led to the establishment of these two huge empires right in the heart of Eurasia and their role in facilitating these cultural exchanges. So it's extraordinary how a a sort of a throwaway line from a a professor or a colleague can sort of send you off in an entirely new direction. (laughs) I know how that can go. Um, One of the things that fascinated me was that not just that you developed these – the, the, the histories of these empires during this period in, in a way that is not often done in many books, but you also show the connections between them. It's one of the things I thought that was very fascinating about uh, your book. You And, and the, and the uh, mechanism for doing so is talking about the Silk Road. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit the idea of the Silk Road and the degree to which the, the concept perhaps owes a bit more to our time than it necessarily does to the time in which it existed? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, So the Silk Roads has become something of a sort of contemporary phenomenon today. The way um, I understand it and try and describe it in in this book is it's a series of different trading routes that essentially connected the the Han capital, the Han dynasty capital of Chang'an with the Mediterranean uh, by land routes and by maritime routes. There was a, there are a number of different ways that this worked and, and this changed, you know, over time, depending on conflict between some of the empires, for example. But essentially, 
fairly large-scale um, mercantile trade did occur. Mostly it's Chinese silk and other high-value exports that are heading out of the, uh, the Han Dynasty into Central Asia and then by various routes ending up somewhere in the Mediterranean world. Um, we have no idea what these routes would have been called in the past. We've got um, various primary source accounts from the Chinese perspective, from the Roman perspective, certainly. But um, the term Silk Rose was actually invented in the 19th century by a German geographer, uh, Baron Ferdinand von Richthofen. He was trying to think of the most applicable labels to apply to these different trade routes. Um, and he was he was a very uh, important scholar of sort of ancient Chinese history, even began to conceive of different maps to, to sort of try and map what must have existed between these different empires. He came up with the term Dysidenstrassen, the Silk Roads plural. He played around with various other terms, Handelstrassen or trade routes. But in the end, um, the Silk Roads stuck because some of his students in the late 19th, early 20th century began to use that term in their own books and their own studies of the, sort of these trade routes. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into this, but so these were essentially commercial routes whereby large quantities of Chinese silk were leaving China and eventually finding their way uh, clear across on the other side of Eurasia uh, in the Mediterranean world controlled by the Romans. I like your use of the word roots because it, it gets to something that I think comes across in your book, which is that the, the concept of a road is something of a misnomer considering, as you explain later in the book, so much more of the traffic went by sea than by land. Although, as you explained early on, the role of the pastoral nomads is so critical to the development of these routes in the uh, early decades of their establishment. Absolutely, certainly. Um, you're quite right. I'm sure we'll come back to the maritime routes, but the role of pastoral nomads who were exquisitely adapted for the sort of harsh environments that existed between these great civilizations. So there's a very sort of clear edge to the sort of the Han Dynasty empire, for example. There's a somewhat fuzzy edge to the other empires as well. But between these great empires, there's some pretty harsh environments. There's very high mountains. There's often deserts like the Gobi and the Taklamakan. Uh, there's a lot of steppe grasslands and so on, which are not conducive for farming. Um, but once human communities, some human communities made this transition to the sort of nomadic lifeway dependent upon large domesticated herds of, of different animals, then it became possible for them to move back and forward between the edges of these great empires and essentially connect them in a way that would not otherwise have been possible. So, I mean, the, the, the nomads play a critical role in various uh, aspects of the early Silk Roads in um, conflict between them, in uh, various uh, empires wanting to form alliances with them and so on against other um, enemies but the, the fundamental importance is that because they became so mobile, could essentially move wherever they could take their, their herds of animals, um, they were able to connect together these great agrarian civilizations and thus make possible exchange on the sort of scale that we see with the Silk Roads. And yet those very uh, traits which make those connections possible also make the study of the of that development so difficult. I, that's one of the things I thought was so uh, fascinating about your book for me as a reader, which was the challenge that exists in terms of reconstructing this process, reconstructing this history, when you're involving so many uh, uh, groups and, and actors who uh, did not have a settled civilization, who did not necessarily have a written language that we can access, that who basically are, are, are in, in effect uh, still, still even to this day unknown to us. Yeah, that's also a very, a very good question. Um, 
you need, and what I try to do is use the work of expert archaeologists, for example. And um, the good thing about the the generally uh, unliterate pastoral nomadic groups is that everybody else around them was aware of them and would write in some detail about them. So the three key ancient um, uh, pastoral nomadic or militarized nomadic groups certainly were the Scythians or the Saka or the Sai, as the Chinese call them, essentially the same groups. We're aware of them because of the work of a disparate range of authors, including the ancient, uh, the classical Greek historian Herodotus, of course, um, Polybius, uh, many other Roman historians, and of course, also many Chinese ancient historians from the Han Dynasty were aware of these groups. Uh, the uh, the Xiongnu, who were the most formidable enemy that the, the Han Dynasty ever faced, were written about extensively by uh, Han Dynasty historians like Sima Chan and Van Gu. So I've got a lot of um, almost uh, anthropological study of their um, their role. And the other group that I was most interested in, that I in fact wrote my PhD dissertation on, the Uecha, um, were also noted by various contiguous peoples all around them. So if we combine the work of of generally um, Soviet archaeologists early on and more recently sort of European and Central Asian archaeologists with uh, all these primary sources that we have from the ancient world, it's surprisingly possible to put together a, a fairly comprehensive history of um, of what they did and what we know about them. But, of course, I have to admit much of it is speculative and I try to be very careful in the book and in all my work and say this is probably what happened or the, the best we can say is that this is probably the, the chain of events that then unfolded. Um, but this, uh, there is a surprising amount of information available. Part of what I think uh, illustrates that uh reliance upon the Chinese uh, sources is how you pick up the story uh, when you do in the second and first centuries uh, CE with what's going on in China. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon uh, where what China is like at this time uh, under the Han dynasties and also uh, the uh, excursions they're making into uh, Central Asia and more importantly, why they're doing so. Yeah, that's great. That's a very thoughtful question, too. Um, so one of the chapters in the book, of course, briefly traces the history of China, of Chinese dynasties from the, the very earliest dynasties like the Sha and Shang and brings us pretty quickly up to uh, the unification of China by the Qin dynasty in the mid third century. Uh, which paves the way, uh, they only last for a, less than a generation, but this paves the way for the advent of the mighty Han dynasty that will go on to rule with, with one interruption for the next 400 years. So in every way, the role of the Han in Chinese history is similarly sort of foundational as the role of the Romans uh, in, uh, in sort of Western civilizational history. Um, when the Han come to power, they um, – Sort of, they have to deal with pastoral nomads right from the beginning. Uh, the Xiongnu have created this huge nomadic empire all along the northern borders of China, stretching from Manchuria deep into Central Asia. The epicenter is Mongolia, uh, the modern nation of Mongolia, as it has been for so many of these great sort of uh, empires of the steppes. The early Han emperors try and negotiate and propitiate, not propitiate, that's the wrong word, um, deal with in a very non-threatening way with the Xiongnu by offering them all sorts of tribute. So literally vast quantities of Chinese silk and other treasure is sent to the, the Xiongnu to try and sort of prevent them from raiding. Uh, of course, all the Xiongnu have to do is raid periodically, come across the, the northern borders to remind the Chinese of how potent they are, and this ensures that the supply of treasure keeps uh, keeps flooding. 
around the middle of the second century, so 141 BCE, a young emperor comes to the throne, uh, Han Wudi, the martial emperor. He's only 17 years of age at the time. And he says, enough of this policy. We're going to take these guys on. Um, he starts to copy the nomadic tactics. He starts assembling huge um, um, uh, herds of horses, for example, training uh, Chinese cavalry, adopting uh, the sort of tactics that the Xiongnu use. Uh, at the same time, he sends a sort of pretty brave young ambassador called Zhang Chan. He sends him on a mission deep into Central Asia to try and link up with this other nomadic confederation. I mentioned the Yuecha who by this stage had been defeated by the Xiongnu and forced to migrate a long way away from Western China, uh, Zhang Qian undertakes this extraordinary mission of about 12 or 13 years, eventually finds the Uecha far to the west from where he thought they were, essentially in northern uh, Afghanistan today, sort of pleads with them to form an alliance with, uh, with the Han against the Xiongnu. They reject it. Uh, they resettle somewhere very safe for themselves and, and, and a very beneficial place. They reject any thought of like, going all the way back to fight the, the Xiongnu. So Zhang Chan goes back to China sort of empty-handed, although with a very detailed report on everything he's seen in, uh, in, uh, in the West, in this great journey to the West. And he convinces the Han Emperor Wu Di that the Han should engage now in a very systematic and explicit way with all the states of Western Asia as part of this policy to eventually defeat the Xiongnu. And uh, I'm, I'm probably going on too long here, Mark, but this leads to some extraordinary diplomatic efforts and the dispatching of huge armies of, uh, of Chinese cavalry deep into Central Asia, thousands of miles away from the borders of China, on some of the largest military campaigns seen in world history to this point, uh, in an attempt to crush the Xiongnu and, and also to ensure now what will become the smooth flow of commerce and diplomacy deep into Central Asia. And it's that fact that that uh, Song Jung is so uh, central that which is why I don't think you're going on to, for him as long because I, I I thought his story was so fascinating. You just you, you you go into some detail as to just how challenging his uh his 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 uh you know expedition was. How he has to escape uh, captivity twice. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that you you that uh you would expect to see you know in a in a novel or a movie rather than. Uh, you know, just sort of a, uh, you know, a, just a, a, a straightforward account of history. And as you explain, it really is this pivotal point after which China does start reaching out more westward in terms of these military expeditions and these contacts that, that be, as you explain, become so pivotal to the establishment of the, uh, of the connections with the West. Absolutely. And uh, look, I agree totally. Uh, Zhang Chan's story is just an, an epic sort of boy's own adventure story. It would make a tremendous movie. And I actually had a, I had a Hollywood producer reach out to me a couple of years ago. Nothing ever came of it, but he was thinking, surely there's scope for some sort of great adventurous historical dramatic film set in, uh, in the ancient Silk Roads period. I said, there is, there is a lot of scope for that. There's some incredibly compelling stories. But, you know, and when you look at world history on the scale that, that, that you and I do, and, you know, I've written a number of world history books and, and textbooks and so on myself, um, often the role of the individual sort of disappears from focus somewhat. When you're looking at the macro scale, it's these larger processes and trends that seem somehow outside of the control of individual humans. But just occasionally, the story of someone like Zhang Shan reminds us that, you know, astonishing personal endeavors like that can really make a tremendous difference in human history. And his undoubtedly does, as you say, captured twice. The first time he's, he's sort of kept in gentlemanly confinement by the Xiongnu for almost a decade. He never forgets his mission. 
Um, all of his party are killed except for one servant or slave that he apparently happily left China. He's married a Xiongnu wife by this stage. He may have had children for all we know. He escapes. He heads much further west. Uh, even when he finds the Yuecha and they reject his overtures, he still keeps going. Uh, spends another year there, visits India perhaps, and learns more about Parthia and Mesopotamia and so on. On his way back, comes back a different route to try and avoid the Xiongnu, captured again, still escapes. I, I, I often I try and imagine the astonished look that must have been on the faces of the, the palace attendants of Emperor Wu Di when the word came in that, guess what, Jiang Chun has been found and he's on his way back to the capital. It must have been astonishing to the emperor. Long written <laughs> off for dead. Long written off, I'm sure. And then, and then he's so persuasive, right? We've got this almost eyewitness account by the great historian um, uh, uh, um, Sima Chun, who may well have been in the room when, when Zhang Chan says, listen to what I heard, right, what, what I saw on this journey, and he's persuasive, and Wu Di immediately dispatches mission after mission deep into Central Asia with hundreds of diplomats, and, you know, we read so much about these missions, so there's a diplomatic um, uh, endeavor coupled with this military endeavor to the north that very definitely leads to the establishment, at least of the eastern part of the Silk Roads. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon that last point just a little bit further. How do the uh, missions uh, and the expeditions ultimately uh, evolve into these trading contacts? Is it a matter of a conscious choice as, as imperial policy, or is it as that contact becomes regular, these develop more organically? Yeah, that's one of the questions I tried to really unpack in this book. Because the, the standard and somewhat cliched view of the Silk Roads, of course, is of huge um, uh, caravans of Bactrian camels, all laden with, um, with bales of raw silk you know, strapped to their sides, and sort of major commercial consortiums, probably in the Chinese capital of, uh, of Chang'an, uh, sort of financing and facilitating this. And then, of course, they travel from one caravan Sarai to another. Eventually, they get to the very end of the sort of Han Empire, roughly where the city of Kashgar is today in far western China. Here they pass this, this precious cargo onto, onto middlemen such as the Kushans or Sogdians and so on from where it's taken further. Um, and I think this view of the Silk Roads does hold up for later periods. So my book's focused on this first ancient period, which ends roughly around 250 with the collapse of many of these empires. Um, but during that period, there's actually very little evidence of large-scale commercial activity like this. What we do have evidence of, I mentioned earlier, is large-scale diplomatic activity. And much of this is using Chinese tribute to be taken to the various states and kingdoms of what is Western China today and other regions to try and form some sort of a tributary uh, empire so that these diplomats will go to the, the state of Shulu or the state of Kashgar or wherever and say, if you agree to join the Han Empire and acknowledge the Han as your sort of symbolic overloads, we'll give you all this good stuff. We'll give you lots of silk and other treasure and so on. All you'll need to do is send your ambassadors back to the capital once a year and formally acknowledge the Han as your overlords, right? And, uh, and then you can keep this good stuff. So it then looks like various Chinese diplomats and uh, elites within these various city-states are monetizing and commercializing this diplomatic treasure and, and then sending it on to these same middlemen that I discussed a moment ago. So it's clearly heading through the Palm Ears and eventually down the Indus Valley. 
But it wasn't like the Chinese government or the Han government was saying, let's send this out as, a, as some sort of commercial endeavor. This is clearly diplomatic treasure that was being commercialized by groups within the far west of China uh, and then becoming this great commercial sort of activity. But I don't believe that that's what the Chinese government was sanctioning at all. And so this is sort of an indirect product of trying to establish this vast tributary empire, which the Han certainly did very successfully. And this is the point in your book where you just uh, take you, you uh, sort of take it aside and you talk a bit about silk and why it was so important. And, and, and it's something that I, I was I was hoping you could perhaps just library upon a little bit, given the fact that we do, you know, it, we, we, I, we were talking just, uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, road versus routes. And, and I'd like to kind of maybe talk a bit about why do we call it the Silk Road and not say uh, the Eastern Road or the Asian Road? Why was silk so important? Well, silk has been like a highly valued commodity within China for thousands of years. In the book, I go into some of the earliest archaeological evidence we have, dating back to perhaps as early as roughly 5000 BCE. So uh, by that, I mean evidence of the domestication of the Bombyx mori, of the, the particular moth and the worm that um, that's associated with it. Um, and we see all sorts of sort of delicate engravings and other archaeological evidence of just how valued the silk moth was from the beginning and the material that its cocoon can spin there's all sorts of legendary tales about an early princess uh, watching a cocoon drop into a pot of boiling water and seeing it unravel. And she was unraveling it on her finger then and saying to her handmaidens, we could make some beautiful sort of garment out of this. And, you know, perhaps the first silk scarf was created. Uh, and then it develops pretty quickly into a large scale commercial activity within China itself. Um, entire households uh, in the end are sort of tied up with, with mass producing silk. Mostly it's the work of women. Some women are tending the silkworms, others are unraveling and then weaving and so on. So there's this long history of its value within China through all of the early dynasties. Pretty well from every dynasty, from the Shang Dynasty on, we've got evidence of just how highly valued silk was. Uh, and it's clear from evidence from the early Han Dynasty that the nomads to the north, the militarized nomads, particularly the Shongnu, also highly valued silk as a, both a luxurious textile but also as a clearly very valuable commodity as well. Um, in the book I mentioned, the, the few records records we have of how much silk was being sent to pay off, to buy off essentially the Shongnu to the north to stop them raiding. And like tens of thousands of bales of raw silk and silk thread is being sent to the north. So clearly, by the way, um, these same nomads were learning how to monetize this and send this on to commercial intermediaries later as well. Um, so within China, silk has been valued for literally thousands of years. In those uh, nomadic confederations and states contiguous to China, it's highly valued. And we now know, of course, that once it makes its way to the West, uh, to say the merchants of Palmyra or the citizens of Rome, they also value it for its sort of exotic, sensual, translucent um, ah, feel, I guess, just the, the feel of it on the body and so on the way it would take all sorts of dyes so beautifully, the way you could weave different sort of figures and motifs into it with other textiles. And it just becomes a, a, the most valuable textile of all in the ancient world. I, I love how you uh, posit the the uh, introduction of it with uh, your reference in uh, the beginning of, of your fifth chapter about the account of uh, Lucius Annius Florus when he's describing uh, the Battle of uh, 
cry and how the the the, the banners of uh, of the uh of the, of the Parthians and, and how it dazzled the Romans and and, and it, it how this is like one of the earliest mentions we have of silk and the Romans it, it, I think it, I, I thought it was fascinating because it gets to this how the Romans might have been first exposed to it because it, it's one thing to see how it would spread as you described to the uh, various uh, kingdoms and, and and nomadic groups on the border of China. But now you're talking about it reaching all the way to Western Asia, the Mediterranean coastline, and 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 how do Romans initially encounter silk, and uh, in in how does it quickly become such a valued commodity to them? Is it just the the the, the nature of it, or is it its rarity? Uh, absolutely, uh, both of those things for sure. You know, that's that's a, the first direct link. Of Chinese silk getting to Rome is a very hard thing to pin down. As I'm, I'm sort of careful of that in the book. We do have this wonderful story from the Battle of um, of Kahai, and um, uh, it's beautifully described by um, by the sources. In fact, I've got this, the, a quote here from Florus, as you mentioned. And so he, Crassus, had scarcely reached Kahai when the king's generals Silaces and Serenus displayed all around him their standards fluttering with gold and silken pennons. Then, without delay, the cavalry pouring around on all sides showered their weapons as a stick as hail or rain upon them. Thus, the army was destroyed in lamentable slaughter. I love the description. Of course, we've got no idea if these banners were silk. But so these are Parthian soldiers. And the Parthians, of course, their empire ranged very far to the east as well. So it's far more likely they would have picked up Chinese silk um, at some stage during this period, you know, uh, second century BCE. And and perhaps well have made glorious silken pennons or, or banners from it, uh, which uh, you know they are a great horse riding uh, military um, uh, um, empire. And I can just see these glorious pennons flying out behind them as they as they um, rode. We know later, for example, that the Mongols also. And I'm jumping out of chronology here. The Mongols also used their silken pennons both as sort of signs and banners and standards, but also as ways of signaling to contingents far off and coordinating attacks. So it makes sense that um, that the Parthians would have had silk, but of course we have no way of knowing whether that story is true. Uh, at the Battle of Kahai, um, Crassus had made a number of mistakes leading up to the battle and taken his men far too far into, into Parthian territory, was unprepared for the supremely skilled cavalry of the Parthians with their superb archery and, of course, the famous Parthian shot where they'd come charging in and fire, then they'd retreat. You'd think they were safe and they'd simply turn around on their horses and fire backwards with the same sort of deadly accuracy. So maybe that's the first encounter Romans had with silk. Um, there's some evidence that the Greeks knew a little about silk or that they had no idea where it came from. Um, there's an island in the Mediterranean called Kos, and some earlier Greek sources speak about silk from Kos, but it's only later that we really uh, after the advent of Augustus, so very early first century of the Common Era, that we start to see large quantities of silk appearing in Rome and we start to read all sorts of sources, poetry and so on, even legislation that's being passed about the exotic and frankly erotic nature of silk, which clearly appealed to the elite patrician women of Rome who loved to wear it who came to regard silk as the, the the last thing in fashion and simply insisted that all their finest garments were made of silk. And apart from these literary sources, of course, Mark, we've got all sorts of visual sources from, from Pompeii, from Herculaneum and so on, of Roman women sitting around in a, a state of semi-undress, clearly all clothed in silk. And um, uh, 
it's it, it, there's all sorts of gender arguments as well about why silk became so valuable. But certainly it was a way for women to demonstrate their independence, perhaps their financial independence as well, if they could afford this fabulously expensive stuff. And it just swept through the early imperial world of the first and sort of early second century. I like how you tied it into the history of Rome, how you're how you point out that, you know, coming as it does with the Augustan era, when there's a period of, of, of greater stability that that facilitates trade. But you also tied into that that this that debate that the Romans themselves were having amongst themselves about whether or not they've become too decadent. You, you describe how it's – I love how you, just, how you talk about how the conservatives who are saying that the wearing of silk is a national disgrace. And yet at the yeah. same time, you know, you have no, no less a figure than the emperor himself wearing silk, which, you know, kind of shows both the the, the, the failure of the arguments and just and just how uh, valued silk is to where, you know, the most, uh, you know, esteemed figure in, in the empire will, uh, is, is happy to wear the, the garments. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great. It really is. It's a very ambiguous world. Uh, um, you know, in in the book, as you know, in, in in that chapter five, I sort of paint the story of the sort of Roman Republic and its crisis and then collapse uh, in a series of civil wars, and then the advent of Octavian, Julius Caesar's uh, adoptive son, who becomes Augustus, who restores order to the empire and then rules for several decades, you know, very effectively, and creates the, the so-called Pax Romanum or the the Augustan peace in which uh, in which merchants and others feel that they can start investing in long distance trade and uh, you know this this couples with the arrival of silk coming out of China and so on through indirect routes, but it does create a sort of a, a cultural crisis in Rome because you've got a lot of young, pretty hip, pretty edgy Romans, uh, um, the, the younger women, the, the daughters, the granddaughters of the sort of the senators who've got the financial wherewithal to afford this fabulously expensive stuff. Then you've got a bunch of very hip young poets that are also active at the time and who talk about the, um, uh, the, the glories of seeing sort of semi-naked women walking up and down on the forum and so on with the, the sun behind them. And, so, uh, and then you've got a lot of far more conservative Romans. And frankly, Augustus himself was very conservative. Um, uh, and and uh, later Romans like Seneca, who sort of condemns Roman women for saying basically no passing or any passing stranger has – just as much acquaintance with a man's a woman's body as uh, as her own husband does. So translucent is this material. So there's this wonderful sort of cultural divide, if you like, between the younger sort of more liberal Romans and the, the conservative elites, if you like. But then when uh, a somewhat crazy emperor starts turning up at the forum in silk himself, this this just provokes moral outrage, and yet nobody's going to call the emperor out for wearing silk. Right? So <laughs> so it was. It was a very challenging time for these conservatives, and only after Caligula had died somewhat violently, um, although it was one of his successes, Nero, Seneca worked for Nero, and Nero also was somewhat outrageous in his dress and his manners and so on. So the sort of later Julio-Claudians didn't help the conservative cause through being very flamboyant in their own clothing. But it really comes down to you know, one of the few examples we have of Roman women staging a sort of gender protest actually wasn't about silk so much, but laws um, in the second century trying to ban excessive jewelry wearing and so on. I'm not sure if I go into this in the book or not, actually, but um, there's almost outright revolt by patrician women saying, don't tell us what we can wear. And you really see the seeds of this early on uh, with, you know, in this first Silk Roads era. 
And I have to say, I really admire these women um, uh, because in so many other ways, this was a strictly rigidly patriarchal society, which men called the shots in every way. But with, with clothing, with fashion, you have to admire these patrician women for you know, going where their taste took them. Now, the Roman Empire represents the Western terminus of the Silk Routes. And I, and you uh, then, after talking about Rome, you go back and talk a bit more about the Parthians and then the Kushans. I was wondering if you could perhaps walk us through that coverage, starting with the Parthians. Who were the Parthians and what was uh, their role in the Silk Road exchanges? Excellent. Yeah. So folks who are sort of listening to us here, hopefully just sort of visualizing ancient Eurasia, you'll find plenty of maps online of the of the four key empires. Um, so the Roman world's controlling everything, of course, from, say, Scotland through to roughly the Tigris Euphrates in Iraq today. At the other end, the Han Dynasty of China is controlling everything from the China Sea, uh, essentially up to the end of modern China today, the western end where the Pamir Mountains are. So there's a big block of territory in the middle there, essentially stretching through modern Iraq, Iran, and then all of the Central Asian republics of today, uh, Pakistan, northern India, and so on as well. And that big central block, inner Eurasia, if you like, was controlled by two very powerful, very successful empires, far less well-known, obviously, than the Han Dynasty or the Roman Empire. Um, the more Western of these were the Parthians, who controlled a, a big block of territory, essentially most of modern Iraq today, Armenia, up into the Caucasus region between the Black and Caspian Seas, now, all of Iran, um, much of sort of the Arabian Peninsula as well, um, and they sort of end roughly along the edge of Iran and, say, Afghanistan today. Um, that territory had been controlled centuries earlier by the Persians, and I'm sure folks listening to us here have, um, know a lot about the Persian Wars between the ancient Greeks and the, and the Persian forces. Um, the Persians were destroyed then famously by Alexander of Macedon, who came marching in in the sort of mid-3rd century or, sorry, um, late 4th century BCE, destroyed the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Um, this led to the creation of the, uh, the Seleucid Empire, essentially ruled by Greeks and Macedonians, uh, and then that paved the way for the Parthians. The Parthians were descended from militarized nomads, another reason why the story of the nomads is so important in the, in the story of the Silk Roads. And they went on to, to carve out this massive empire over a period of um, about 100 years, they created it, um, beginning around the, say, 250s BCE. Their empire would eventually last through to roughly 250 CE, so a 500-year-long empire controlling this big chunk of territory centered on Iran. The two great kings, Mithridates I, Mithridates II, are responsible for, for having the ability to campaign far to the east, so deep in Central Asia, fighting other nomadic groups like the Saka, the Scythians, and then suddenly marching far to the west to fight the Romans or the Armenians and so on. So tremendous sort of military leaders, but also then to construct superb capital cities. I've had the, uh, the, the pleasure several times of visiting the city of Nisa, N-I-S-A, which is in uh, Turkmenistan today, which becomes the great imperial capital, first created by Mithridates I. And although the capital was very mobile, and wherever conflict was or wherever there was trouble in the empire, that's where the emperor and the, the or the king rather and the court was. This becomes a symbolic capital and the burial place of uh, of the kings. And if folks ever get a chance to visit, it's the most gloriously situated um, city you've ever seen, with uh, the great copper dark mountains snow covered behind. 
and uh, and Gloria sort of step grassland stretching out in all directions. Um, yeah, it's a, I don't mean to get sidetracked, but it's the most fitting place I've ever seen for an imperial capital. Uh, and then they, they remain tremendously successful and play a crucial role in the Silk Roads, both land-based but particularly um, maritime. And I'm sure we'll talk about the maritime routes uh, in a little while. The problem the Parthians have is that their, their western border uh, is the same as the Romans' eastern border. So there are several centuries of conflict between the Romans and the Parthians, often over the, city, the, um, the state of Armenia, um, sort of in the north there, as to who will control that sort of important kingdom. Um, we mentioned the Battle of Carhai earlier. That's a fairly early example of, of conflict between the Romans and the Parthians. But it continues right through, long after the Julia Claudians have gone, Trajan, Hadrian, uh, and even the much later Roman emperors of the third century still find themselves having to deal with this very powerful military state of the Parthians. So they're a very important part in the story and in ancient world history more generally. And they deserve, um, I think, uh, more than a paragraph, which is what they often get in most world history textbooks. <laughs> and, and as you explained, they, they play this the important role in terms of, as, as uh, do the Kushan, of, of in effect uh, providing stability that allows these routes to flourish. Yes. And the, the Kushan's the other of these great empires. Coming back again to the role of pastoral nomads, I mentioned earlier in our discussion, Mark, that uh, one of the groups bordering uh, ancient China was the Yuecha, Yuecha. Um, and we know about Yuecha being active as merchants even since the Zhou dynasty, so long before the Han. Uh, I mentioned that they come into conflict with the Xiongnu, and for a long time it's a very even balance of power, with these two great sort of heavyweights battling out for control of the northern and western border regions of China. But in the end, around 160 BCE, the Xiongnu, under their very powerful leader, Modu, inflict a series of defeats on the UHR, and they decide pretty sensibly, I think, let's get out of here. And they migrate over a 30-year period, eventually back to northern Afghanistan. And there they, they find themselves sitting pretty. They're in a, a lush environment. They've got states all around that acknowledge their military superiority and acknowledge them as their symbolic overlords. Over the century that follows, they carve out an enormous empire, which stretches eventually from the Ganges Basin in India, uh, all of the Indus Valley, um, much of the republics of Central Asia today, so uh, most of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, southern Kazakhstan, at various stages they're also controlling parts of Xinjiang, which is in western China today. And the kings there will rule for the next 200 years an unbroken line of succession from the founder of the empire, Kujula Kapfasis, unbroken for 200 years. Uh, their coinage remains highly valuable and the, the weight standard remains the same, just evidence of real stability in this vast region of Central Asia. And all of the major trade routes, north, south, east, west, down to the maritime ports, pass through the empire of the Kushans. So having this powerful, uh, tolerant, stable empire in control of the crossroads of, of ancient Central Asia frankly, makes the Silk Roads happen. Uh, it's, it's obviously lots of fun to speculate in the history, but if this region had remained fragmented, not unified, not under the control of, this, of these powerful kings with their laws and good road systems and, 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 and good currency and so on, it's hard to imagine the Silk Roads would have flourished to anywhere near the extent that they did. So, um, you know, the, the, the Kushans are sort of my real specialised field now. I mentioned I did my um, PhD on the Uecha, 
the ancestors of the Kushans. And out of that, I've naturally written a lot about the Kushans. Um, just as an aside, I was invited to a conference in Berlin about, gee, maybe five years ago now. It was based on a very sad premise, actually. It was convened by Harry Fork, who's one of the great ancient linguists and, and Kushan specialists of Germany. And he said that in European universities and in most American universities, the study of ancient languages of Central Asia is fast disappearing. These universities are losing their um, uh, Sanskrit schools or Bactrian schools or any of these ancient languages. He said, let's get together. Um, there are about 40 of us, the leading 40 Kushan specialists in the world. Let's get together. Uh, the German government will pay for this conference. We'll fly all over here and pay for your accommodation. And let's go through every source reference we have in ancient literature to the Uecha and to the Kushans. Let's essentially give it a five-star rating. Like this is... This is good quality reference. We can trust this all the way down to, no, this is clearly rubbish for whatever reason. And then we'll publish our findings and scholars in the future who no longer have the ability to assess the veracity or the quality of these references will be able to use our findings um, when they're writing their books 100 years from now. So wasn't a sort of an exciting but very sad premise to convene a, uh, a conference? And, yeah, we sat around for three days and went through about 120 references to the Uecha and the Kushans in so many different languages and gave them a rating and then published our findings. Uh, where was that published uh, for listeners who want to follow up on that? Uh, that's a good question. The, it's a Harry Fork. It's um, oh, Proceedings of the Conference on the Kushans, um, published by – it's the M-A-I-N-Z, so in Germany, the Munz Institute for – but if you just – if someone just Googles Harry Fork – proceedings, conference on the Kushans, it'll pop up real easy. Now, you've described these land routes and the empires uh, were playing this role as we just you know mentioned about in terms of you know providing stability and uh, the connections. But then you go on to explain how that in some ways the maritime routes further to the south were a bit more important. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon uh, those maritime routes and also why it was that we, if you have those maritime routes, why do you also then have the land routes? Because as you explained, the maritime routes, in, in, uh, for, uh, from an economic, in some, in many uh, economic respects, made more sense. Yes, totally. Well, so early on, we, we, this book's covering a period. Actually, it covers a period of several millennia, but focuses in on that sort of three hundred and fifty year period, one hundred BCE to two fifty CE. During that first century, right? So one hundred BCE, so through to the year one, and probably the next. 50 to 80 years, the land routes are all that are really all that we really have in terms of moving this stuff to the west. Um, there's not a developed a maritime infrastructure early on. I think that's the first point to make, and um, and it's only in following Augustus and sort of during from the mid first century of the Common Era on that the maritime routes start to develop. So part of the reason the land routes were very very challenging. Um, I talk in in all the chapters I think about. The, uh, the geographical challenges, right, of these routes. So it's, uh, you're dependent upon uh, large caravans of camels to, to navigate some pretty fierce deserts, uh, to get through some of the highest mountain passes on, on the planet. Um, this is true coming from China, also true coming from the Mediterranean. There's a lot of desert out there to cross, and then the, the high Zagros Mountains to get up to the Iranian Plateau, which itself is a pretty sort of harsh environment to get across. But early on, it is these land routes and so smaller quantities of silk are making their way slowly to the west. When the Romans finally take control of Egypt, 
they start to develop maritime infrastructure there. So this is during the, really the first century of the Common Era. Um, I talk in some detail about three major ports that the Romans actually construct um, uh, down the sort of the, the, the uh, what would that be, the western coast of the Red Sea as these ports develop. So the Romans start to construct much larger ships as well. At the same time, there's this long discussion and, and mystery about the discovery of maritime uh, winds and when this first happened. Um, there's a somewhat Eurocentric explanation that it was it was Greek sailors during the Hellenistic period, so during the, say, 2nd century BCE that first discovered the secrets of these winds. Uh, during the monsoon, they blow in one direction. In another season, they blow in a different direction. So it's possible to set off from the coast of Africa, be blown clear across the sort of the deep water of the Arabian Sea and end up on the western coast of India. Stick around there for a few months. The winds will blow back out of the heart of Asia and blow you straight back again. Uh, before that, all maritime trade, which, by the way, has been going on since the time of the Mesopotamians, ancient Egyptians, into civilization, it's been sort of hugging the coastline. So you'd follow the bays around the contours of the Arabian Peninsula and so on. But now suddenly it's possible for these deep water expeditions and much larger ships. Of course, we would imagine that Indian and African sailors discovered these winds long before, but they're first mentioned in this uh, very important Greek sailor's handbook, the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea. So once these winds have been discovered and maritime infrastructure has been developed and ports will also be developed along the west coast of India, then suddenly it's possible to move much larger quantities of goods um, from India across to Egypt and then up the Nile River and across the Mediterranean on, on regular sort of Roman trading routes. But that's really only possible from sort of the mid-first century on. So then the western half of the land routes start to disintegrate. And, of course, this corresponds with the period when there's a lot of conflict between the Romans and the Parthians, so it makes geopolitical sense. So now the goods are coming out of China in large quantities – They've still got to get around the Taklamakan and Gobi Desert. They've got to get across the Pamirs, but from there, Kushans and other traders take them straight down the Indus River Valley to a series of ports along the west coast of India. Then they're loaded onto Roman ships, which are worked by Tamil Indian sailors, taken across to Egypt, taken inland, often on canals that the Romans developed to the Nile, and then on boats taken up the Nile and, uh, and straight across the Mediterranean. What you described there is, is to me fascinating because it points to the durability of these routes, how when there were complications at one area of it, then a lot of that trade uh, was rerouted. And yet you then go on to explain the decline of this trade uh, a few uh, you know, a few decades later. I was wondering if you could perhaps you know, explain what it was that brought an end to that trade. What, what were some of the factors involved? And, and does the trade come to a complete end? Or does it simply tail off until it resurges at a later point? Yeah, great. Yeah, this is the, the sort of last part of the the first Silk Roads era. Of course, there's a, a reason I deliberately chose that title, the first Silk Roads era, because there are there will definitely be later periods, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. In fact, b before I do, we could even argue we're about to see a fourth Silk Roads era right now in the 21st century with the uh, the activity of the the contempt the current Chinese government with their Belt Road Initiative in, uh, in Eurasia. But we can come back to that. Um, yeah, everything sort of comes to a, a pretty dramatic halt in the middle of the third century. And it's like, um, it's extraordinary to see this in retrospect, this civilizational collapse across Eurasia yeah. 
But it's hard to pin down. You can't sort of say, well, there's one overarching reason why all these civilizations begin to disintegrate in the early to mid-third century. But to a certain extent, that is what happened. So everything is flourishing right through the first and second centuries of the Common Era. And those two centuries are the, really the high point of this first Silk Roads era. Um, things start to unravel, firstly, in China. Um, the, the early Han Dynasty, full of vigor and power and outreach and so on, uh, has a hiatus uh, for a period of about 20-something years when uh, a very well-meaning Confucian um, first minister, Wang Man, uh, Wang Mang, sorry, stages a coup and establishes his, his own sort of short-lived dynasty. That collapses quickly. The Han family come back, and they'll go on to rule for another two centuries. But the later Han, although it corresponds with the high point of the of the Silk Roads, are never as successful um, as the early Han. And um, a series of peasant rebellions break out. There's a series of very poor quality uh, emperors in the sort of latter part of the second century. Um, there's a lot of infighting between between eunuchs, between the empress's families, between the Confucian bureaucrats and so on. Warlords appear all over China, and um, one of them, one of the warlords, keeps the last hand emperor in place as a figurehead until he finally sort of topples him and replaces him. China then endures roughly 350 years of what we can call the age of disunity when warlords or small dynasties rise and fall with sort of an alarming succession, actually, and China will not be reunified again until late in the 6th century by the Sui dynasty, who will pave the way for the mighty Tang dynasty that will follow, that will rule from roughly 600 to 900. So while that's going on, um, as we move progressively west, the Kushan and the Parthian empires are both overrun by a brand new power, which appears in Central Asia, the Sasanians and their extraordinary leader, Ardashir. Sasanians are also of sort of Iranian-Persian uh, descent. So in, in effect, the Sasanians represent the third great Persian empire after the Achaemenids and, uh, and the Parthians, reminding us, by the way, that Iranian empires ruled much of Inner Asia for more than 1,200 years. Sasanians overrun both the Parthian empire and the Kushan empire, which collapses there's a sort of irony with the Kushans. Uh, they send an ambassador uh, far back into China to the Northern Wei Dynasty, one of these smaller dynasties I mentioned that now rule China, requesting help to come and help them against the Sasanians. I say ironic because, remember, it was the Han Dynasty that sent their ambassador, Zheng Chan, to the UHA many centuries earlier, asking for their help against the Xiongnu. Both ambassadors were rebuffed. So the Kushan Empire and the um, Parthian Empire both collapse in the 220s and 230s. And finally, in the Roman Empire, there's this period called the crisis of the third century. Um, during a period of about 50 years, something like 26 emperors rule. There's a lot of violence. Um, a lot of these emperors die a very violent death. For a long time, historians of the Roman world used to say, this really, this really crippled and debilitated the Roman Empire. I offer in the book uh, something of a revision of that idea now in that uh, th this period paved the way for renewed vigor and growth in the Roman world in the latter half of the third century. And, of course, the Romans were going to rule for another, you know, two and a half centuries, so by no means collapse. But there is this moment all the way from Chang'an to Rome where there's unrest and, and, and relative chaos and certainly the collapse of three civilizations, and this leads to an almost complete drying up of long-distance trans-regional trade for the next three and a half centuries.
Wow. <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Well, I stay, I remain very focused on Inner Eurasia. Firstly, Cambridge have expressed great interest in a follow-up book to this, um, something like Eurasia Reconnected, the second Silk Road Zero. So I've had some good discussions with my editor at uh, Cambridge University Press, and I think that would be a tremendous book if I uh, can find a few moments to sort of think about it. Um, <laughs> and that will look at the Tang Dynasty I mentioned that ruled from 600 to 900, uh, corresponding with the Sasanians for a while, and then with the mighty uh, Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates and the Byzantines. So, again, order, stability is restored right across Eurasia. Trade flourishes again. Things fall apart a little bit out after that. And then the Mongols, of course, uh, indirectly create another period of uh, great stability in the 13th uh, century, into the 14th century, when, again, trade and exchange, cultural exchange flourishes, reconnecting Europe and China. So, in a sense, that would be a third Silk Road Zero. And I can see another Mongol book, focus particularly on their role as facilitators of trade and exchange. But speaking of the Mongols, I've just finished writing 24 lectures for a new course for um, uh, folks might know the Great Courses Company. Um, it's actually called the Teaching Company. They they have a lot of these wonderful DVD series and or downloads uh, called the Great Courses, everything from how to understand trigonometry, how to listen to Bach and so on. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do two Great Courses one called the Foundations of Eastern Civilization, sorry, Civilization, one the Big History of Civilization, and the one I've just written and will be filming later this year is a, a, a 24 lecture course on the Mongol Empire. So that's going on. I've just sent off a, a, a manuscript of a, a book I've edited for Rutledge, the Rutledge Companion to Big History, and I'm working with Cambridge University Press on a new series of e-books, um, of digital books on the Silk Roads, that will focus on everything from the ancient Silk Roads right through to, as I mentioned, uh, Chinese Premier Xi Jinping's uh, uh, Belt Road Initiative, which looks to many like uh, the Chinese government re-establishing a huge uh, commercial tributary empire in Eurasia through effective investment, exactly what the Han Dynasty did you know, more than 2,000 years ago. So you're saying you have a few works in progress. <laughs> You said it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well I, I do hope we can have you back uh, again for the New Books Network. It, it, it sounds like it, that all those projects sound very fascinating, and I, I look forward to the opportunity to uh, read and, and listen to some of them and to have an opportunity to feature them again in the future. Mark, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope folks do find this book, uh, that they find it enjoyable and and uh, understand something more about the ancient world um, and and actually how much the modern world owes to these incredibly important processes more than 2,000 years ago. I hope they do as well, and, and I'd like to think that uh, you've done a lot to help us with that today. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.